and don't be afraid of failure. In fact, embrace failure because failure is what got us to where we are today. When you just, when life is easy and you're just sailing through and every business deal happens to go well for you, that's not always in your best interest. And that reminded me of one of my favorite sayings, which is... definitely different. We're not for everybody, but we're becoming more for more companies out there because they're starting to really get the value of the gamification and the innovation. And then the devices didn't work well when they first came out. It was a huge mistake. You bet. My name is Dana Korn. And I have a few different lives career-wise, but I think the one we're talking about today is that I founded Sonic Boom Wellness. What is Sonic Boom Wellness? Sonic Boom is a SaaS play, so software as a service. We're a software company in the corporate wellness market, in the corporate wellness world. And basically what that means is that companies hire us to get their employees healthier. And what we do is we do it through fun and games, gamification. We were really the first to create the gamification world or the engagement category of wellness. And where are you located? Carlsbad, California. It's absolutely beautiful today. Actually, it was kind of nice. I rode my bike to work today along the ocean and it's just what a way to get your day started. And that's right outside San Diego? Yep. We're about 30 miles north of San Diego and south of Orange County in LA. How did you get into this space? And can you give us a little bit more details on the company as far as revenues or employees so we get an idea? Sure, absolutely. We started Sonic Boom, and actually, I'm not the sole founder. My co founder is now my husband, Brian Vanoy. And we started Sonic Boom 10 years ago. Actually, started it, it was born out of frustration. And we saw a need. And the way that happened was Brian and I go way back. We were buddies from a a different life, if you will. And I would ask him, what do you do? And he said, well, I work for a corporate wellness company. And I said, what is that? And he said, companies hire us to get their employees healthier. And we do it through biometrics, health assessments, and coaching. And I said, boy, that sounds boring. How do you get anyone to do that? And he said, absolutely, it is boring. He said, we can't get engagement. Nobody wants to do it. We have to incent people to do it. You know, it's just really hard to get people to participate. So I said, why don't you fun it up? I was in the wellness world too. I actually have written seven best-selling books on the subject of nutrition. And specifically, I'm known as the gluten-free guru. And so I said, why don't you guys just fun it up? And he said, nope, that's not how it's done in the wellness world. And Brian and I are both serial entrepreneurs. I started my first company or business when I was eight, and he had already started a couple as well. I've started many, many since then. And we said, let's do it. And we were off and running. Can you tell us how specifically you met Brian? Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that I'm an author in the nutrition world and specifically gluten-free is my area of expertise. I started doing this 27 years ago when my then toddler son was diagnosed with celiac disease. And back then, nobody knew what gluten was. Nobody had heard of, nobody had heard of gluten. I was really on an island and terrified to feed my own kid. So I dove into it head first. I started doing research. I worked with the world's leading researchers and clinicians and became an expert, really the world's leading expert on the gluten-free lifestyle and all the medical conditions that benefit. So I was a speaker at all these conferences and everybody was asking me to speak because people were suddenly discovering gluten intolerance gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. And Brian at the time was working for this corporate wellness company, but on the side, he had started an internet company for gluten-free foods. So where I was the speaker at these conferences, Brian was always a vendor, if you will. And so we got to be buddies back then. And that's how we met and became friends. And the rest is history. Y'all are now married today? We are. I've been married several years now. We started the company first and then decided, gosh, we're 
pretty much doing this 24-7. Let's get married. That was several years ago when y'all did get married? Yep. We've been married nine years. I guess basically just from the company started, huh? I mean, were y'all dating before you did the company or no? Yep. We were dating before we did the company and then decided to start the company. It was, it was actually really a tough time. This was 2008 seven when we started the company, 2008 when we got married. And, you know, it's tough enough being married to your co-founder, but then to have the world's economy collapse before your very eyes as you're one year into starting a company, it was tough times. For all, for both of you, were y'all both working full-time at this company and not doing anything else? We were kind of. In the beginning, when we started Sonic Boom, Brian gave up his job at this other company, the corporate wellness company. So he was all in. I, on the other hand, tried to continue to do my recruiting business and I was still writing books. And that quickly, we quickly realized about three or four months into it that we needed my full attention. So I gave up. It was a company I had started, a recruiting company that I'd been running for 12 years really successfully, but I gave that up to do Sonic Boom full time. I didn't give up the book writing. Brian thought I did because by then I was onto my sixth book and it takes a lot of emotional energy and a lot of time to write a book. These are four of them are in the four dummies series. So I had publishers with very tight deadlines, very strict guidelines. So he said, Hey, do me a favor. Don't write any more books. And I said, no problem. And then I signed a contract to write my sixth book and he didn't even know I was writing it. I wrote it in the middle of the night. I would squeeze in a chapter here and there. And once it was published, I put it in front of him. He was blown away. He's like, how'd you do this? You know, I think that's part of an entrepreneur's nature though to be able to juggle a lot of balls like that and to be able to manage a lot of things at once. Well, I definitely want to come back to the beginning of the company and talk about you going full-time and maybe some of the stress and with that. But could you talk to us about the Four Dummy series? I've always been curious how you get into that and like, what's that like? Yeah, great question. I was curious about it too. When I first started writing books, I was not with the Four Dummies publishers. And I had at first a small publisher and then a larger publisher for my second. The Four Dummies people actually called me. They seek out a guru in a particular area, and typically that guru can't write, but I had already written several books, and they really liked my style, so they gave me a call one day and asked if I would be willing to write for the Four Dummies series, which for an author in the nonfiction world is a dream come true, and I thought it was a joke, so I kept saying, who is this? I thought it was a friend playing a joke on me. I actually hung up on the guy, and he called me back. He laughed. He said, I know this is this is really, you're going to think this is really odd, but really, we do want you to write a book for us. And so I was off and running. Then they had me write three more after that. What does it look like as far as like income for you when you do something like that compared to, I guess, maybe the other books that you had done? The income on a For Dummies book, it really ends up equaling out sort of. You make less money per book. I mean, I think I was making a whopping dollar something on every book sold on Amazon, but they have a wider distribution model and they put a little bit of PR backing behind it. Gluten-free became such a hot topic that I was, my books were bestsellers even in the For Dummies series. And still to this day, I haven't published one for quite a while now, but I still receive royalties, which is really nice. You know, years and years go by and you're still receiving royalties on a book you wrote years ago. And you said that deadline was pretty stressful. What's it look like when they tell you, hey, after you accept it, what's it like compared to the other book writing? Yeah, typically you sign a contract and you've got three or four months to write the book to their guidelines, their specifications and their standards. At first, when I first started writing for the Four Dummies people, I had a different idea in mind, a different table of contents. The style was the same. So my writing style is very much my personality. I hope it's funny. I like to make it just really 
interesting to read. And they liked that, but it was the order of the book that I had trouble grasping at first for my first book. I think my first book also was timed right around 9-11. Being funny was not easy for me. I was dealing with a lot with little kids trying to deal with that, like the whole world was. So it was tough, but yeah, you've got about three or four months and you do not miss deadlines, you know, or at least I didn't. I took those deadlines very seriously. They don't just say the whole thing is due in three or four months. They have progressive deadlines so that you've got a, a chapter or two due by a certain date. And how would you compare that to writing your own book? Did you enjoy it more or I guess there's less freedom and you ended up making more money, I imagine, if you're, especially if it with the bandwagon with gluten-free at the time. Yeah, exactly. I did end up making more money with the Four Dummies publishers. Part of that might be because I had four editions of two different books. So that's one reason I made more. But the flexibility and the freedom, they actually gave me a lot. Once I was able to embrace the structure of a for dummies book, which is just that you're supposed to be able to pick up a for dummies book and open any page and it's going to make sense to you. In other words, you don't have to take every chapter sequentially. And once I wrapped my arms around that, it was a breeze. They hardly copy edited me at all. They just let me go. One chapter was really fun because they fact check every word they have. I had a PhD, an MD, and a dietitian reviewing all of my work. So it has to extremely accurate. And they frown on you making things up in a Four Dummies book. But I did take one chapter to offer my hypotheses as to why there is such a tight core relationship between gluten and behavior. So we're talking autism, ADD, and that entire spectrum of autism. And I created a hypothesis around it, which at first I thought they were going to toss out. But once the PhD said, wow, this is actually really good, they went ahead and left it. We just, of course, had the caveat all over the place that this is Dana's personal belief and there is no study to indicate this is true. How did everything work out with your son? Oh, he is now, he just turned 28 today and he is happy and healthy. We feel like this was just a tremendously great thing in our lives that he ended up having to be on a gluten-free diet because if you do it the right way, there's the right way to do gluten-free and there's a really unhealthy way to do gluten-free. And we went down the right path and of course did a lot of research on that. And he, I think, had a number of advantages. He was an athlete. He was a star pitcher for baseball. And I used to joke about what an athletic advantage he had because before his games, he was eating chicken breast and salad and brown rice, whereas his buddies were eating pizza and spaghetti, you know? So I always felt like it was an athletic advantage for him. And of course, today being gluten-free is a whole different can of worms than it was, easy worms, I guess, than it was 26, 27 years ago when nobody knew what gluten was. Uh, do you want to open up that can at all before we jump <laughs> in the company or no? Or should we just bypass that? I don't know how long that would go on. It just has to be amazing for you to be the, like I said, I'm looking at your LinkedIn and just the timeline with the gluten-free. And then how long ago did it really jump? Like was it six or seven years ago? Yeah, like? I'd say six or seven is when the world started embracing it. Whole Foods finally got behind it. And that was what I was working on for a long time was I've got to get these retailers and food manufacturers, General Mills, for instance, I've got to get them to listen to me because they have no idea how big this market is. And I have worked with General Mills very closely. I worked with Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Wild Oats at the time, and all these other retailers who at the time said, we don't have a clue what gluten is. We're certainly not going to invest in it. And I just, I had to laugh and say how short-sighted. Let me tell you why you need to invest in this. And so that was a big part of my advocacy program. Let's go ahead and yeah, jump back into Sonobu moments. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, in the beginning, I guess you, you had gone full-time. I guess you had small amounts of income coming in from being an author and 
how about your husband? Did he have, I guess he wasn't a husband <laughs> quite yet, nothing. And can you tell us about maybe the stress of working together? Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough, but I'll address your first question first, because it's actually kind of amusing. When I first met Brian, he was extremely successful working for this large corporate wellness company. And I was thinking, wow, it's going to be really nice to have a man behind me who's making all this money. And then we started Sonic Boom and his next 1099 was 19 $19. $19 even <laughs> or W2. It was so funny. We laugh about that today. So no, Brian had zero income. I had pretty much zero income at that point. Once I gave up my job, my recruiting business with a little bit of passive income from the books, but it wasn't a lot. And I, we had a huge nut at the time because my recruiting business was very successful, had a very large home, lots of property, three investment homes. So I had a lot, a big nut. And I was burning through my savings so fast. We had got to a point actually, I don't know, six months into the business where we had four months of savings left before we were going to be homeless and not able to pay any of our bills at all. And that was terrifying. I used to wake up every Monday morning crying, going, this is, this is really stressful. This, I'm, we're running a charity practically here. We're just making no money. To make it worse, make matters worse, everybody we talked to trying to get financing, trying to get funding for the company said, this is never going to work. Even the people, the distribution model that we were going after to sell our program, they all said, I don't get it. Why would you gamify wellness? It's a serious business. Nobody is going to buy this. And so we were just being shut down left and right. And people looking at us like we had six eyes to come up with this concept of making wellness fun. So yeah, it was stressful. On top of that, we were married or, you know, first living together and, and then married and working with your spouse is not easy, especially when you're both entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs just by nature and really by definition are typically intelligent, stubborn, opinionated. And so you put two intelligent, stubborn, opinionated people together working 24-7 in a business that appears to be failing. And then you have the 2008 collapse of the world economy. And yeah, I thought it, <laughs> I wasn't going to make it. After four months, you only have four months of savings. What switch where you started making money? Where did you get any income from outside sources? And how did you actually start making money in the company? Well, thankfully we failed every time that we tried to get income from other sources. We tried angel funding. We tried PE, growth equity, VC. We tried really everything. And we just failed and failed and failed time and time again. And I say thankfully because today we are thrilled that we have no investors. We're 100% owners. We have zero debt. We don't even have a corporate credit card. So we've got zero debt and we're thrilled about that. But no, it was really tough. And finally we got three clients to buy into us, to believe in us. And they were teeny tiny clients. You know, today we work with companies of several thousand lives and these companies had maybe 20 or 30 employees, <laughs> but they believed in us. And what happened was we created our program. We launched on January 1st, 2008, and we had these three clients in our back pocket and they helped us to shape the program from there. So we started with a super simplistic program. I look back at our one page website now and I just laugh that, <laughs> that anybody thought it was so cool, but they did. They loved the concept of making wellness fun. And those three companies got us started, helped us evolve the program. And then it was another company, another, but it was still slim pickings because these companies weren't paying us a lot. And we were starting to grow and thinking we needed to hire other people. And there really is a tipping point because it's money out of your pocket to hire people. 
And yet you can't just keep working 24 seven to do it all yourself. So there comes a point where you really have to take that leap of faith and hire your first employee to help you out. That was tough for us. And then we really turned the corner probably, I don't know, maybe a year into our business when we had a very large company, Kyocera, you've probably heard of it and not very large, but at the time for us, very large, I think they had about 1200 employees or so. And for us, that was huge back then. And they got it. They believed in us. And they said, I love the concept and we're going to go with you. And so Kiyosara was our first big boy client, if you will. And to this day, we are so thankful that they believed in us and took a chance because that's where we finally had a little bit of breathing room, not a lot, but a little bit of breathing room and could hire other people and continue to grow. How do you spell Kiyosara? Because I don't, maybe I haven't heard of it. It's K-Y-O-C-E-R-A. They make printers. They've got medical imaging. Yeah, yeah. I know the logo. Now I'm good at like visual. And now that you just said that, I'm like, okay, I definitely know who you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, can you tell us maybe like one of those first clients, what you did when you went in there and how much you got paid versus Kiyosara when you go there, how you're able to get someone that much bigger, I guess, than your old clients. Yep. When we had little clients, we bill on a per employee per month basis. So if you have 30 employees, we're going to bill you, let's say for that tiny group, it would be maybe $5 per employee per month. So you can do the math. (laughs) It's not a lot of money. The larger the group size, the lower the unit cost. So for a Kyocera type client, I think it was probably 350 or so per employee. Let's say they have a thousand, you know, we're still not getting rich off of that, but certainly a huge difference. But, you know, having said that, I don't want to disparage the little guys in any way because they gave us our start. They taught us a lot. We don't take clients of that size anymore, but we still have some of our legacy clients. One of the very first clients we ever had was 16 Life Group, and we just can't break up with them if we try. (laughs) They're still with us, and they still love the program, but the program has changed a lot, and it's evolved, and they've helped us to evolve. How often are you going into the places and what exactly are you doing? Are you talking about to sell and to get new clients? Right. Yeah. I guess I was trying to think of when you went to a smaller client, what you went in and told them as you were trying to sell and get there their business, but what you actually would do when you went in there? Because are you going in there once a month to the companies to try to promote excitement and wellness? No, that's interesting. We never go on site. In fact, we don't even go on site to sell. And that was a differentiator because our competitors were all not only going on site, but they were going all the time in front of these people's faces and here's who we are and you need to buy us. And so we had a huge disadvantage. We didn't have the budget. We couldn't go on site. We would use other means. We did a lot by webinar. And by the way, the program today being a SaaS model is hugely scalable because we never have to go on site. All of our program is run through a portal using activity trackers and the portal itself, which offers a lot, but we never have to go on site, which is great. Again, though, our competitors were on site. What we do though, is we leverage using a distribution model, we leverage our sales. And this distribution model is employee benefits, brokers, and consultants. So they're going into a client, they're selling health insurance, dental insurance, vision, long-term disability, things like that. Kind of boring stuff, right? And it's all commoditized stuff. Then they come in and they say, hey, we have a wellness solution that you want to look at. And not only is it a wellness solution, but it's a really innovative wellness solution. We use them. We leverage our distribution model to sell for us. Interestingly, we do not pay them a commission. We are providing them more value for their clients. So now their clients get the commoditized boring stuff, but then the broker looks like a hero because he brought this super cool, innovative solution to the table and the client, you know, these days they love it. When we started Sonic Boom, 
we had to sell why wellness first. We first had to tell everybody, here's why you need a wellness program. The healthier employees are happier. They're more productive. They're absent less. Your health insurance costs go down. So we had to sell the whole why wellness back 10 years ago. About five years ago, that changed. Everybody knew we have to do wellness. I think something like 97% of companies today have some form of a wellness program in place. So they understand today, they understand the value. Now what we have to do is say, why sonic boom or why engagement type of wellness is better than the boring clinical stuff. And then we do have competitors now who are doing the engaging gamification stuff like we invented. And so now we have to sell why gamification and then why sonic boom over our competitors. And our competitors are big. Like we're the David in a world of David and Goliath. Every one of our competitors, one of our competitors is owned by Richard Branson. It's a virgin brand company. (laughs) And so they're huge and they all have tons of venture capital, 30, 40 sales reps. We have two. (laughs) It's definitely, we're a David in a world of Goliaths and we're holding our own. We really only have two or three competitors. We've got 45 employees now. We've got more than a hundred clients, big names, and uh, we're definitely holding our own. We're a formidable competitor to them. Right when you started, you knew you were going to be online the whole time? Yes, we knew. And that was pretty innovative back in 10 years ago, we knew that, yeah, we knew that we had to be scalable. There was no way we could conquer the market in a big, big way if we were having to go on site or hire people to go on site. So we knew the only way to be scalable was to create a software as a service program. Initially, even those first ones, were you the ones doing the selling or you and your husband? Until about six months ago, we were the only ones doing the selling. That's another differentiator for us. Most of our competitors have come up with an idea or stolen ours and, <laughs> and then they go out and they get venture capital. So they've got gobs and gobs of money and the venture capitalists only care about top line. They do not care as much about profits. So they're saying, just go sell, sell, sell. So they put, they being our competitors, put all of their money into salespeople. Well, what we did was we couldn't get that venture capital or any kind of funding. So we had to build our program first. And then I said, I just want to service the heck out of it. I want happy clients. I do not want to be selling because we're having to replace unhappy clients, let's keep them as happy as we can. So I created these sky high standards for spoiling our clients rotten. So as we grew, we found that about half of our staff or more resides in the client services side of our business. And we skimped on the salespeople because Brian and I love sales. We enjoy it. We're leveraging the distribution model and really innovation and sales are both the things that we love most. So it was just the two of us. And we every now and then hire a kid to come help us do certain sales functions. About six months ago, we hired two relatively inexperienced, at least in this industry, they had no experience, salespeople who are just getting up to speed now and just starting to really gain some traction. But until then, it was just the two of us. And that's and that's why we're working our high knees off. We're trying to run a company of 45 people. We're trying to sell, sell, sell. We're trying to innovate like crazy because that's a differentiator for us and service the heck out of our clients. There's a lot on our plates. It's not easy, is it? Mm-mm. No. When you're a business owner, I think you jump to all these different functions to try to you know improve the business over time. And then sometimes you get drawn into maybe one that you shouldn't have and it's just trying to delegate. <laughs> that time properly. You mentioned yeah. the sky high standards. Can you tell us what those were that made your clients hopefully more satisfied than the other people? Absolutely. And still to this day, it's one of our greatest differentiators. Number one, we did not want to create cookie cutter programs and say, here, you all have the same program. So every client has unique and customized promotional plans. We also, being an author, I 
guess, and always being a grammar nerd, we, our grammar is impeccable. Our marketing materials are impeccable. So we will just won't allow anything out of this company that isn't perfectly written, concise, fun. I have a certain style that I've used in my books and we use on our website and teach everybody here to write in it, which is sort of almost flippant and yet highly professional at the same time, but it really grabs people's attention. And, and just making sure that I'm touching the client or not I anymore, but our teams are touching the clients at least, you know, maybe once a week during implementation or more. And then once they've implemented, then at least once every few weeks or every month or so, but just touching the client as much as possible and making them feel service. Anticipatory service is what I like to say. I'm not going to wait for a client to call me and say, hey, Dana, you know, what's going on? Our engagement is low and people are grumbling about not liking the program. Not going to let it ever get to that point. We're going to be on it, reaching out to them saying, here's what your engagement numbers are. Let's boost that. What do you have going on that we can work with promotionally and, and really just energizing the program. That's our job is to energize the program. Our competitors, they don't do that. Our competitors are trying to be something for everyone and very vanilla and cookie cutter programs. And I don't know if I was a client, I wouldn't like that. That's what I always think when I'm doing client service or product innovation. If I was the client, what would I love and what would I hate? And we always steer toward what we would love. Let's pretend that I am a new client. I maybe what would be an average employee size? Is there one? We don't really have an average. Our minimum is 200. We've had 60,000 life groups. We're in the hunt right now for some groups that are well over a hundred thousand employees were finalists actually for those. And so our size is really all over the board and what works for our program really has very little to do with the size of the company or even the demographics or the industry. It has more to do with, are they excited by the unique aspect that Sonic Room brings to the table? Are they totally jazzed by the fact that we're not like our competitors because we're not for everyone. And we know that we're, we're not going to appeal to a stodgy, boring company at all. So we're not even going to try and sell that company. In fact, if they want to buy our program, we don't let them buy our program. It's just not going to work. It's not going to set us up for success. We'll be successful if the people running the program or the C-suite is just really excited by our innovative and disruptive nature. If I was a new company at 200 people and I wanted to sign up with y'all, I'm just looking at your website. So they would come in and I would sign up my employees and they log in as a member. And then what do those people actually see that helps them? Yeah, exactly. So they log into the portal and there's a whole menu of things that they can do. We have things called smart cards and they're going to be tailored really for that person saying, here's a contest you might enjoy and then get smarter over time. So if you're wearing an activity tracker and your tracker sees that you have a lot of running activity as opposed to walking, it may give you a smart card that says you might want to join this running contest. We've got all sorts of competition. We find that people love to compete, but they really also like to cooperate and to motivate and help one another. So we've got the contests that are really starting to go over well, especially with millennials, are the social challenges. So an example would be you've got your activity tracker on. It's tracking how many calories you've burned. And it's all feeding automatically into our site. So you've got a contest going on, your leaderboards. I see that Austin has burned X number of calories. Dana's number four at burning this number of calories. At the, and so we're competing that way. But at the end of the contest, which is typically three or four weeks, then all of those calories that we've burned are added up and the equivalent number of calories are sent in the form of meal packs to starving children in Africa or to a local homeless shelter or to whomever, whatever charity the company might want to donate to. And so now you're competing, but you're also cooperating. 
And that's a fun one. Besides the contests, we've got really stimulating gaming mechanics. Might have one, we've got one called Undercover Boss. And one of our employees developed this when he was here for like a week. And he said, Dana, I've got a great idea for a contest. And it's called Undercover Boss. And we're going to compete against you and Brian. But everybody on the leaderboards is named Boomer or whatever alias you want to come up with. So nobody knows who's whom on the leaderboards, which means... You don't know if I'm in the lead or if I'm number 10 or where Brian is on the boards. So you really have to be trying to be the leader because otherwise I might be beating you. We threw a pie in the face of the losers. Brian took a pie in the face. I got to throw a pie in the face. Um, so that's what how we, we walk the walk around here. And then we've also got customizable challenges. Let's say my form of stress reduction is fishing. I could create a contest with whomever I'd like or with the whole company to see who can get the most hours of fishing in or who can catch the most fish. I'm Brian and I are huge skiers. So we constantly do a ski off challenge to see who can get the most vertical feet of skiing in a particular month or even a weekend. And so it's, it's all completely customizable for the member. So let's say I was doing running these trackers originally, was that all part of the plan in the very beginning or how did that happen? Over yeah, time? that's an interesting question, Austin, because it was one of our biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. When we started the company, we were focused on gamification of wellness or well-being as it's called today and making it fun and our software program. Somewhere down the line, we got distracted thinking Fitbit is a really cool device, but we could make one even cooler. We took our eye off our core competency and we worked with a company to manufacture a device just for us. It is very cool. We still have it. It's very cool. We call it the boomerang and it does everything a Fitbit does for about half the price, but it also is a smartwatch, which I know Fitbit is now, but it wasn't at the time. And it has messaging. So I can individually message a group of people or an individual as the client. I'm a client now and I want to reach one person saying, come to HR immediately, bring a box or something like that. I can now reach one person or a group of people. It is very cool, but it was a huge mistake for us. Devastating actually, in that we took our eye off of our core competency, tried to do something that's a big, big something that isn't our core competency. And and we ate it. We ended up, the company we worked with didn't have the standards for meeting deadlines that we did. So we kept promising to meet deadlines for our clients, but this company would fail us. And then we have to take accountability. And the clients were getting mad. They were like, I've never had Sonic Boom fail us before. And so, and then the devices didn't work well when they first came out. They were, clients were screaming about that. We had to pay them lots and lots of money to compensate. It was a huge mistake. I would encourage anyone listening, don't ever take your eye off your core competency. Just stay laser focused focused on what you do well and what your original mission was. What year was that? Let's see, 14, I think, 14, 15. So before that, were you using a standard kind of pedometer or something like that? Before that, we had a really cool device by a company called Fitlinks, and you wore it on your shoe. Now, Fitbit had come out, so some people were using Fitbit, and we can work with any device, but our efforts were really focused on using Fitlinks, which was a, a huge profit center for us. We sold hundreds and hundreds. They were very inexpensive. I think we sold them for $35 or so. And the cool thing is they were waterproof and they were super accurate, like incredibly accurate, way more than a Fitbit is today. That was all fine and great and good until they went out of business. And then again, we were in deep doo-doo because we had invested a lot of money. We were making a lot of money off of them. And our clients, get this, our clients had invested a lot of money and imagine being told, okay, you just spent 
One of them, I think, had spent $100,000 on these Fitbit devices, or not Fitbit, I'm sorry, FitLinks devices. And now, guess what? It's going to be completely worthless to you in about six months because the company's going under and nobody is supporting the platform. We offered to support the platform and FitLinks wouldn't let us. Then we've got angry clients left and right again, no fault of our own, but we had to take the accountability for it. So we had to compensate them. We had to give them free devices, our new, what we called then the boomerang device. We had to eat it. We just ate hundreds and thousands. I think it was to the tune of nearly half a million dollars that we ate because of BitLinks' demise. It makes more sense why you would want to come up with your boomerang, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's when we said, well, good thing we have a boomerang. Bad thing was it didn't work very well and it wasn't accurate. So these clients who were spoiled with a very accurate and cheap device are now saying this thing is trash. It doesn't work well. And they were right at the time. So why did they go out of business? Ever hear about that? Yeah, they had a couple of arms, a couple of branches of their business. One was doing this that I just described. Another was well, they had several different ones. And as Fitbit became bigger and a bigger force and Garmin and Jawbone and all these other device manufacturers were getting bigger and better, Fitlinks found that their market share was going down to nothing. Fitlinks never sold to the public and they only sold through wellness companies. The other wellness companies weren't as invested. We were by far their biggest partner. They weren't doing enough business. Having really only one major partner, they weren't doing enough business, so they closed down. Today, what do you use to, as a tracker? We still have our boomerangs, but we're sort of easing people off of that to a Strive device. Strive is the manufacturer that makes them. And we're really saying, just go buy a regular Strive device. And then we also have what's called a BYOD approach, which is bring your own device. And most companies are opting for that because they figure everybody's already got a Fitbit. They may not be using it because there's no fun to a Fitbit. Really, they're not that much fun unless there's a social component to it, which is what we provide with our softwares. We make it fun to use your Fitbit. Otherwise, you're just staring at the same number of steps every day, right? Not very interesting. So the clients now are saying, can they use their Jawbone, their Garmin, their Fitbit, their Misfit, whatever they've got? And we say, yes, we take the data from any of those devices and bring it into our site. And so they're really opting not to buy devices from us as much as they used to, which means we have to pivot because we used to make a lot of money on devices. How about software development? It didn't sound like you had any background or your husband <laughs> in it. Can you tell us about the challenges of doing that? Yeah, it's really funny too, because when we started Sonic Boom, neither one of us really knew that we were going to start a software company. We knew it was a software model, but in our heads, if somebody said, what kind of business do you have? We said corporate wellness today. And probably two years in, I went, oh my gosh, I started a software company. That's really weird to me. No, neither of us had a background in software development. Brian having his internet business before he had that online company for the gluten-free foods, he had already launched website and e-commerce site. So he was a little bit ahead there. And he also knew quite a bit about SEO marketing and he's pretty savvy and really enjoys that part of it. But neither one of us was a developer. What we did first was we outsourced it. We went to India and we got an outsourcing firm to create our software. But the problem for us at least was we would ask for chocolate chip cookies and we would end up with oatmeal cookies. They just couldn't get it right. And I don't know if it was a problem in the way we were communicating or they were interpreting it, but it just didn't work. We ended that after three or six months and we hired our own software developer, just one guy at first, and he built the guts of the program, really got us going. And then from there, as we became more sophisticated and added, you know, I think I mentioned the first site was really just one page. 
as we started adding features and pages and complexity to the program, that was when we had to build our team up. When you were doing that software development, when did that actually start? Because I'm just trying to figure out, you were one page at first and it sounds like the software is the main part of it. So when did you hire the guy on and have enough money to do that? Yeah, we started the company in June of 2007, hired the outsourcers for probably July, August, September before we realized that's not working. And so we went on Craigslist and found a guy probably September or October. And we said, we have clients going live in January. You have to build or one, you know, at that point, just one page, but you have to build this before January 1st because we have to go live. It was just one site, but it wasn't static. It was very much a dynamic site, taking in data from those PEDs I described, the FitLinks PEDs, and showing at that time, it was just a little yellow sticky that showed your steps walked, run, and your time and calories burned. So we showed four metrics and brought it into the site. And then we created the contest engine as well. It was a very simplistic contest engine at first, but we created that and launched by January 1st, 2008. Did you have experience in gamification? Because I find that kind of an interesting topic. I mean, I've heard it works sometimes here over time. Maybe it doesn't. Can you tell us how you knew to do this in the gamification model and what you think about that model? Yeah, it's interesting because gamification is really sort of in my blood. You know, I joke that I skip every where I was the mom on the playground that was on the playground equipment with the kids. You know, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and read a book. That's no fun. And I love playing. I love to play. I also love the way kids think. And I take a great deal of my inspiration on a daily basis from kids. And the fact that, you know, they run everywhere. They're skipping, they're twirling, they're jumping. They're just unbridled enthusiasm and love of life. I just love it. And I try to embrace as much of that as I can. When Brian was complaining about nobody wanting to do the boring parts of a wellness program. It was so duh to me. It was just so duh. Why don't you fun it up? Make it fun. Make it something that people want to take part in. I used to make chores fun for my kids by making a little secret place where we'd write all the chores down and we'd reach in and pick them out. And I don't know. I just, I've always sort of gamified everything for my kids and for my family. And to gamify wellness was sort of a no brainer. And Brian too, very playful. He is just incredibly intelligent and out of the box thinker. And together, it just made so much sense to gamify, but nobody was doing it back then. Gamification wasn't even a word. I called it funifying. Back then I would say we're funifying wellness. And that's why people would look at us like we had six eyes because they just didn't get the concept. How can you make wellness fun? I mean, today it's people do it. Fitbit talks about it, you know, and all the Nike talks about it and everybody sort of talks about making fitness fun. But back then, what's fun about nutrition? But we made it fun. We created a challenge of the day. One of the first parts of our program that we created was called challenge of the day. And every day somebody would get some kind of a challenge and it was typically visual and something that you would do with other people. So the challenge might be, we're going to teach you all about lunges today. We're going to talk about the benefits and you involve your glutes and you burn off X number of calories and here are the muscles you're involving, things like that. But the challenge at the end of this, after you've learned everything, is go grab 15 of your buddies at work and do lunges every time you go to the restroom or have a wall squat meeting or you know something like that. Just a little bit goofy, a little crazy and visual because it's like a dance floor. If you go to a wedding and there's a dance floor and the music's great, you might want to dance, but you may not want to be the first one out. But the minute someone goes out there, everyone goes, right? And that's what challenge of the day is. That's what our program is really all about is get one person to do the fun parts of wellness and everybody else will follow. And that's what we're trying to get people to think and do while they're at work. You're at work more hours than you are anywhere else. So why not take a few minutes out of your day 
to do all the right things. What happens if you're working by yourself? You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, good question. And that comes up a lot because a lot of our clients have remote salespeople. They don't see each other. They don't interact with, they don't even know each other. So that's where we've done a lot of workarounds. One might be on a contest. Let's go back to my ski off that I create the contest who can get the most vertical feet of skiing this month. I maybe don't know anybody at my work. And I don't know if anybody skis, but I can open this contest up to everybody. And pretty soon I see that I have X number of people who have joined my contest. You know, I might say, whoa, there's 200 people who have joined my contest. And then I can communicate with them and I can say, where do you ski? Oh my gosh, I ski mammoth too. What run are you skiing this Friday? And let's meet. And it actually creates some camaraderie and teamwork. The other thing is you don't have to be in the same office with somebody to be on the same team with them. You don't even have to know them. So for instance, if a client is going through, let's say they're going through a merger and you have company A merging with company B and nobody from company A knows anyone from company B. So what we'll do is we'll suggest have a contest where you have teams and the teams are comprised of two people from company A, two people from company B. They might be in different countries even, but now you're on the same team and you're working for the same goal. And that's where we can create unification remotely and virtually. Does it only work within companies or what? Say you have a couple clients, can you cross companies do these contests? Yeah, great question. Once a year in the month of March, we do something called the UFC, where Ultimate Fitness Challenge, where we pit our clients against one another. So now you're competing as yourself, you might be on a team within your company. You're representing your company against other companies, and it's really quite competitive. And actually, we can set that up at any time. We just, in the month of March, that's when we invite all of our clients to do it. But sometimes a client will say, hey, we're a construction company, and we want to go head-to-head -head against all your other construction company clients. And we'll say, awesome, bring it. You know, We set that up for them. So that's really a lot of fun. Schools like to go up against each other. Got a lot of competition. The construction companies are funny because it's typically mostly men, highly competitive, and they will oftentimes, the prize is that the loser company, the CEO has to wear the swag of the winning company, you know, if they're competitors or something that makes it really fun. Have you always had this much energy and excitement over <laughs> work and stuff in general? I do. I am just so fortunate. I don't know why. I love life and I love everything I do. And I just have a passion for creating a lot of energy around everything I love to do. And I'm like a blender though. Brian laughs. He says, you are either so on or you are dead to the world. So 9.30 at night, I am off. I'm gone. <laughs> I imagine you use up that energy trying to win some contests around there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You've walked us through a couple of challenges. Before we get off, do you mind, is there anything else that you can think of that might help our entrepreneurs? Or if you want to share any other challenges that you might have had and you're able to keep going and make a successful company. Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage you to try not to work with your spouse. We're doing fine with it, but I think we're really unique in that way. I don't think it's healthy for most couples. And even we, as much as we try to have a work-life balance and we race cars and we, we do things that create a lot of adrenaline, jumping out of airplanes and skiing real hard stuff. So that's healthy, but we still are not healthy in the sense that it's hard to find a work-life balance. We think about Sonic Boom 24-7 and we end up talking about Sonic Boom 24-7. So I'd say if you can avoid that, great. And don't be afraid of failure. In fact, embrace failure because failure is what got us to where we are today. When you just, when life is easy and you're just sailing through and every business deal happens to go well for you, that's not always in your best interest. And that reminded me of one of my favorite sayings, which is 
good deals get better and bad deals get worse. And so if you smell that it's just going a bad direction, chances are really good that is not a good business deal. And I don't know, I find that to be true, not just in business, but in all of my personal endeavors as well. I really embrace that saying. Is there a deal recently that you can think of? You just have that feeling? (laughs) Yeah, actually, we started off with a client that wasn't a super great fit for us. Normally, we would walk away from that client. A great fit depends on how excited they are about the program or, you know, are they really looking for something more clinical, but we're the fun side of things and what are they looking for? So it wasn't a great fit. And, you know, our gut told us we probably should walk away from this, but they begged, begged us to keep going and we really love the program and it's just sort of one thing happened after another and it was a bad deal getting worse and it ended up being a really nasty situation because they talked us into doing something we never do and that is we started work without a contract and we did a lot of work without a contract we never do that and ended up going down so far that we just wanted to walk from the client. We knew it wasn't going to set them up for success, wasn't going to set us up for success. And we ended up parting ways after spending a lot of time and money on this particular client. So that's where we didn't trust our instinct that good deals get better and bad deals get worse. It seems like you've been in the forefront of these other, the gluten-free thing, and then, you know, gamification when that wasn't even a word. Do you have vision for the future more of your company, anything in general? And then the other question I had is, I mentioned freelancers because I think a lot of more of the workforce is going to go that way. Maybe they're working from home and don't have that social interaction. Have you thought about, or do y'all do something with just freelancers or individuals? We do not. And the reason we don't is because here at what I call intergalactic headquarters, we have an amazing culture. We've got an energetic group of people who share our passion, got bright walls, orange, green, yellow, purple, red walls. And we've got an office dog. It's our husky that we bring to work every day. We do happy hours and all sorts of fun events. And that culture would not exist if people weren't here sharing their passion and their energy with us. We don't hire freelancers. We've only got three remote employees and we ask everybody else to work here at Intergalactic Headquarters. As far as a vision for the company, we're in a really interesting time for well being in that our competitors are failing left and right. The little guys are getting gobbled up by bigger guys. We are in the big leagues. We only have, as I mentioned, two or three real competitors that give us, one really gives us a headache and the rest are really not that big of a threat for us. And so we're in this consolidation phase of well-being where everybody gets that they need a well-being program. Every client out there knows they need well-being, but who are they going to choose? And I think the future is really bright for us because we've stayed true to our core competency, except for that one mistake. And we have continued to innovate while our competitors have gone the other direction. They're getting more vanilla. They're trying to do too much and be something for everybody and they haven't innovated their complex gaming mechanics or their gaming mechanics for forever. Their sites look a lot like they did two years ago. And I really feel like the future's super bright for an innovative, we try harder, a company like ours. It's just, we're definitely different. We're not for everybody, but we're becoming more for more companies out there because they're starting to really get the value of the gamification and the innovation. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. If someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview or reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? They are more than welcome to find me on LinkedIn. It's Dana Korn with a K and then Vanoy. I think I have both names on LinkedIn. And sonicboomwellness.com is our URL. We've got a meet the crew page there too. So you can actually go 
stalk me a little bit on the Meet the Crew page. And then I, because of my writing stuff, have a different website that I don't do anything with, so don't judge. And that is danacorn.com. Great. Well, like I said, we'll throw those in the show notes and appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Well, thank you so much, Austin. It's been so much fun and you did a great job. I appreciate it. Hey there, Millionaire Interviews listener. Even though you're probably alone right now while listening to this podcast, know that at this very second, you're actually listening with thousands of other listeners all around the globe. That's right. The internet can be a crazy place, and we've actually taken off in dozens of countries. So whether you're in the northern, eastern, southern, or western hemisphere, we appreciate you tuning in. And if you'd like to connect with those listeners all around the globe, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question about their episode, well then check out our Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast. Hasta luego, baby. People don't care who they hurt or be. All of my money. A woman will